Our most gracious Father, we thank you that your word instructs us in every season of life, that your word is sufficient no matter what our circumstances may be, that your word guides us and directs us through even the deepest and darkest valleys and even the highest mountaintops of life. In seasons of sorrow, we're reminded by your word that you are with us. And in seasons of joy and victory, we're reminded that you are with us. And so, Father, wherever, wherever we may be this morning, we pray for you to give us assurance that you are with us, that you are for us, and that you're sovereign over our circumstances. Give us an assurance that will last through the fiercest storms in life, that nothing, nothing can happen to us that you are not sovereign over. That Christ would be glorified both this morning and in any seasons of suffering we may endure. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, if you have your Bible with you, I invite you to turn to Psalm 6. Psalm 6. First Sunday of the month, we are doing a study in the Psalms. Every other Sunday, we're in uh, the book of John, the Gospel according to John. But today is the first Sunday of the month, so uh, we are going to be in Psalm 6. We're just preaching right through them. Not that we're going to keep going all the way through the Psalms uh, every first Sunday, but uh, as long as we're in John, we probably will be uh, doing Psalms. And I, I, I don't know if we'll do them all chronologically or not. We'll figure that out as we go along. Well, if you were to look out into the backfield today as you're leaving, you will see that there is a tree back there, not, not one of the big trees, thankfully, but one of the smaller trees, about 30 feet tall, uh, that is completely tipped over and uprooted. And there's another one not far from it that is completely split in half. And if you're wondering how, uh, how this happened, well, you know, these trees uh, about four weeks ago, three or four weeks ago, were actually perfectly fine, um, but then we had a snowstorm. And during the snowstorm, in addition to uh, the, the damage that, sustained, that we sustained to these two trees, we also had several very large branches, 30 feet plus, uh, come down right over by the house. Um, I'm actually surprised that there were not more because I was inside watching all the trees and what was happening as all this snow and all this ice was accumulating on them. As the snow and the ice was accumulating on, these, on the branches of all these evergreens that we're surrounded by, that we have all over the place, it was pretty amazing to see how much weight these branches can actually bear. I mean, a lot of these branches uh, go straight out or maybe slightly down, um, but they were... Uh, they were so weighed down with snow and ice that, uh, that they, they just, it, it looked like a smooth veneer. It was, they, were, they were drooping all the way straight to the ground. Uh, I knew that it was only going to be a matter of time before some of those branches snapped, uh, as seems to happen every time we get a little bit of snow or ice or a windstorm. And sure enough, a few uh, really big branches did snap. They did come down. But the number was nowhere near what I started to expect as I saw that more and more weight was piling up on these branches. But it got me thinking as I was preparing to preach on this psalm that sometimes I feel like those branches. <laughs> Have you ever felt like those branches? 
Have you ever, have you ever seen what I'm talking about, the, the branches when they, when they slope down because they're so heavy uh, with snow, with, with accumulation? Have you ever felt like those branches? I mean, I, I know I have. Have you ever felt like the weight of the world was just piling up on your shoulders and piling up and piling up and you felt like you were just going to snap? I mean, I, I know I have. I have to imagine that, that you have too. And what we're going to see as we continue our study of the Psalms today is that even David, this mighty warrior, this brave warrior, this man of God, even David felt like that sometimes. So today we're going to be looking at Psalm 6, and this is an absolutely beautiful psalm. Uh, and in the end, it's, it's, it's an uplifting psalm. It starts off very dark, but in the end, it's a very uplifting psalm. But we're going to see that ride. We're going to see what that looks like, the, the road from, from terror, terrifying trials to triumph. And we'll see that it can be very difficult. I mean, if you've been through a fierce trial, you know that it can be absolutely exhausting. I mean, it can drain you. It can even depress you. But if you're in Christ, it will also refine you. And in the end, if you're in Christ, it will strengthen you. After all, we do believe that God is actively causing all things to work for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purposes, that good being our growth in likeness. We believe that, right? Romans 8.28. We believe that. We believe that. Things are working for his glory and things are working for our good, all because his sovereign hand is over all things. There's a certain mindset, though, that you'll find within a lot of Christian circles that denies the possibility that God would ever, ever want or allow you to feel like one of those branches out there. A mindset which would say that God's will is for us to constantly be overflowing with with happiness and feeling ecstatic and and living in, in victory all the time. And while I would agree that we should always remember that the victory that we have is secure in Christ Jesus, God's people are not immune from what Martin Lloyd-Jones, a great preacher from yesteryear, from what Martin Lloyd-Jones called spiritual depression. Of this malady, Martin Lloyd-Jones writes this. He says, quote, It seems to be a condition which has afflicted God's people right from the beginning, for you find it described and dealt with in the Old Testament and in the New. And if there's one place that, that I would say you can find this this malady, uh, the, the reality of this condition, and the, the cure for spiritual depression. It's in the Psalms. So Psalm 6 is actually the first of what they refer to as Psalms of Lament, or Psalms of Repentance, or maybe even Penitential Psalms. Uh, sometimes when, uh, you know, when we read and study the psalms that David wrote, uh, there will be some kind of note at the beginning to tell us, you know, this happened during this time in David's, year for, or in David's life. And for example, Psalm 3 starts out by telling us a psalm of David when he fled from Absalom, his son. So from the beginning of Psalm 3, we have an understanding that that's, that's what is, is happening as we go through the psalm. But for Psalm 6, there is nothing like that, which only, by the way, makes it easier for us to relate to. It, it 
sort of broadens the doors for us, so to speak. That is, the fact that we don't know what David's circumstances were. We don't know what is causing David to experience this this distress, this spiritual depression, uh, as he wrote this psalm, it allows us to more freely enter into his grieving and to see ourselves in the heartache that he was that he was experiencing, the spiritual depression that he was going through. So whatever David was going through, whatever his circumstances were that were causing him to feel such despair, this psalm gives words to us when we feel like that. They, they give words to us when we are so smitten with grief or so overwhelmed with anxiety that we aren't sure exactly what to pray. We've all been there, right? When, when something so disastrous happens and all you can do is, is grieve. You, you don't even know what to say. You don't know how to pray. So when our heartache is so overwhelming that you can't think straight, that you can't find words, Psalm 6 is a great place to start. Psalm 6 is a place where we find that David, through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, can sympathize with us, and thus he can teach us how to find victory in the valleys. So to keep it very simple for us, there, there are basically only two sections of this psalm, um, and, and that is in verses 1 to 7, we see him in distress and depression, and then in verses 8 to 10, we see David find deliverance from this distress and depression that he was going through. But the central point of this text, the central point of this psalm, is that while God's discipline can be indeed agonizing when we're in the midst of it, his discipline is always, always for our good. In that it refines us and it teaches us to trust in God above everything and anything else. So we start Psalm 6 with verse 1, which starts out by telling us, for, for the choir director with stringed instruments upon an eight-stringed lyre, a psalm of David. Remember, that part is inspired. And it continues, O Lord, do not rebuke me in your anger, nor chasten me in your wrath. Be gracious to me, O Lord, for I am pining away. Heal me, O Lord, for my bones are dismayed. And my soul is greatly dismayed. But you, O oh Lord, how long? So we're reminded once again with this preface to the psalm uh, that the psalms were given to us for the sake of singing them. They're, they're given to us for the sake of singing, of worship. This is a practice that has been almost completely abandoned uh, by the modern church, but I do see that it has kind of regained a little bit of popularity um, in recent years. Even the Gettys, who wrote the song In Christ Alone, which we're probably all familiar with, uh, even the Gettys are coming out with an album in which they're singing psalms um, you know, in, in, in meter. Uh, when Christina was in the hospital a couple of years ago for, for several weeks, uh, one thing that struck me is the only thing that would bring her comfort, the only thing she wanted to listen to, were psalms. So she found an artist who just has a couple albums filled with, with psalms, and that was all she would listen to all day long. And they found her, they, they gave her great comfort. But the psalms were made for singing. And God actually specifically instructs us to sing uh, psalms in the New Testament church as well. You can find that in Colossians chapter 3, verse 16. So let's start by remembering that even ancient Israel would sing this psalm 
together. The psalm that we sang this morning, they were singing 3,000 years ago, 1,500 years ago, but, or uh, 2,500 years ago. But after uh, the instructions are laid out for the choir director, uh, we immediately see the anguish that David is experiencing. He, he just goes straight to the, to the heart of the issue. He pours his heart out to God in this desperate and painful plea. Is it because he sinned? It sure sounds like it. If you listen to what he says, Oh Lord, do not rebuke me in your anger, nor chasten me in your wrath. It sure sounds like David feels like maybe he sinned. And there's, there's certainly a chance of that, as there seems to be something of an inherent acknowledgement here of guilt on David's part, but he never confesses to anything specific, unlike, you know, you get to Psalm 51 or something like that, and David is clearly, clearly repenting of a sin, confessing and, and repenting of a sin. So maybe he just feels like what he's going through is a discipline that he would have thought, uh, because it's so harsh, he would have thought that this was only deserving for people who were completely lost. We don't know. But while we don't know what David was going through, we see that whatever his circumstances are, whatever is happening here, they are so harsh, they are so heavy, that David feels like God must be angry with him. So he's in a place of agony and discomfort, yes. But above and beyond that, he's afraid of God's angry rebuke. And he fears God's wrath. But whatever the situation is, David sees through it. He sees through it and and he acknowledges that it is ultimately God's hand using this situation to discipline him. And yet we have to understand that David is not asking God to not discipline him. He's not asking God to refrain or to stop disciplining him. He's not asking God to stop correcting him. No, the Bible clearly teaches that a wise person welcomes and receives the Lord's discipline, and that only a fool refuses to receive the Lord's discipline. Proverbs chapter 3, verses 11 and 12 records what might have been David's words to Solomon. Uh, These are the words. My son, do not reject the discipline of the Lord or loathe his reproof. For whom the Lord loves, he reproves, even as a father corrects the son in whom he delights. What a contrarian thought. We see that God's rebuke, God's heavy hand of discipline, it may be a response by God in, uh, you know, in, in response to a sin in David's life. That's certainly possible. But it may have also been just the fact that God delighted in David. And so he disciplined him as a means of refining him. That is, it may have been because God just loved him so much and he saw that there was an impurity, there was a sin in David's life that that he could purge by putting David through this situation. Maybe he wanted to grow him in a certain aspect of, of his character. Maybe he wanted to purge something God can do both. He can take things away from us. He can can purge sins or he can add character to us. And he does these things. Those are two of the things that, that God does in the valleys. And yet, God's discipline is so fierce, it's so heavy, that David is worrying that God has turned against him. 
He feels like God is treating him the same way that God would treat the wicked who remain under his holy and just wrath. So David is essentially saying to God, discipline me if you must, O Lord, but not out of your anger. And if you're a parent, that's a very important distinction to make. Those of you who are parents, you know the difference between disciplining out of love and disciplining out of anger. And as a parent, we've probably all done both. But over time, we learn that if we're angry at something that that our kids have done or whatever, it might be best for mom and dad to be the one to take the time out and and, and to come back and to discipline later with a a, a thought-out, strategic, loving form of discipline. So to put it another way, David is willing to take the rod, but he asks God to spare him from the sword. He's willing to take the rod, but he wants to be spared from the sword. So discipline me, but don't destroy me, is ultimately his prayer. Instead, look at verse 2. David pleads for grace. He says, be gracious to me, O Lord, for I am pining away. Heal me, O Lord, for my bones are dismayed. See, the person who knows the Lord knows that this is their only plea. That God's grace is all we have. It's all we have to count on. All David deserves is is the same as you and me. All David deserves is destruction, and he knows it. That's all he has earned with his sin, and he knows it. It's all I deserve. It's all you deserve. But David models the righteous plea to us, for us, not based on his own goodness. He doesn't say, God, I'm not like the wicked. Why are you punishing me? Why are you disciplining me? He doesn't say, God, don't you know, uh, I've given this much to, to the temple, or I've done this, or I've done that. He doesn't plead any of that stuff. He's not saying, I don't deserve this. Rather, he's saying that he knows that he does deserve this. And so God's mercy, God's grace is his only hope. So instead of pleading his own goodness or his own merit, he acknowledges his weakness his frailty. He, he says he's terrified down to his bones in verse 2. But then in verse 3, he, he goes to the next level. He goes even further with that. He's terrified down to the depths of his soul. Verse 2, he says, oh Lord, my bones are dismayed. Verse 3, oh, my soul is greatly dismayed. So it, it's going down to, to the depths of his very being. I mean, it's, it's not too burdensome to be shaken down to the bone as long as your soul remains unstirred or unshaken. But when even your soul itself is shaken with terror, all David can do is ask, how long? How long? It's as if to say, Lord, I I don't know if I can bear another second of this. And yet with the same words, he acknowledges that only God can bring him relief. Only God can steady his soul again. So he says, but you, O Lord, how long? In other words, I don't think I can last much longer. But you, how much longer can you dish it out? So can you see how David feels like one of these branches that's bending more and more as as the weight just piles upon him? Have you ever felt that? Of course you have. Of course you have. And you probably will again. 
But can you, like David, can you see through the circumstances that you are facing and see that in some way, somehow, God's hand is actually in it for you, not against you? Can you see how David feels? It's like he's got nothing left. You know, I, I, don't, I, I, I do understand that we have a lot of difficulty with the idea that God would allow us to suffer. That he would allow us to feel agony or, or misery. And how much less comfortable are we with the idea that God might actually cause us to feel agony or misery. He's interested in our holiness. We, 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 in our flesh, we want a God who just wants us to be happy. That's the God of the flesh. He wants you to have whatever you want, right? That is not the God of the Bible. God is interested in our happiness, but above and beyond that, he's interested in our holiness. Because if you just have happiness, you'll find happiness in the things that please the flesh. But if you have holiness, you will have something much greater. You will have happiness. That, that's part of the package deal with holiness. But your holiness will give you a happiness that cannot be lost in death. Instead, your joy and your happiness and your blessedness will be greatly, greatly, infin infinitely magnified in death. What a blessed thing it is that God is more interested in our holiness than he is in our happiness because holiness leads to a lasting happiness. And the way to holiness is often, almost always, it almost always involves a journey through the valley of the shadow of death. The only way is through the valley of the shadow of death, where we are refined, where we are purified, where our values, our affections, our desires, where those things are all shaped and all changed, and we grow into a deeper faith in which we trust more fully in God. So it is both a horrible and a blessed thing to go through the valley of the shadow of death. Maybe you got sick. Maybe somebody that you love betrayed you. Maybe you lost something, either justly or, or unjustly, whether that's money or reputation or a job or maybe even a family member. And whatever the cause of your grief may be, it, in the moment, feels absolutely overwhelming. It feels like you are just being crushed. And it's so heavy that you're not sure if God is punishing you or if he is, you know, just unaware or what he's waiting for in bringing relief. I mean, is he using that moment to grow you in virtue? Maybe you remember what James said in his letter, Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. So maybe that's what God's doing. Maybe there's a sin in your life that you need to repent of. But how helpful is remembering this? How helpful is remembering that, that God might have a purpose in this, uh, in, in this chastising, in this discipline, when you're feeling like you can't take another second in the, in the furnace of the refiner's fire before you melt. Because all you want in the moment is some, bur uh, some relief from this burden. 
some relief from whatever your suffering may be. So it is both a horrible and a blessed thing to go through the valleys. It's horrible because sinful habits and sinful desires purged from us is never easy. It's painful. And it's never easy to to, to grow in perseverance either or to grow in patience. The only way to grow in patience is to have your patience tested over and over and over again, which makes us feel like one of those branches, right? See, it's blessed though. It, It feels horrible in the moment, but it is blessed because God goes with us into whatever the valley may be. See, it's easy to trust God when you're on the mountaintops, when you're, you're in the sunlight on the mountaintops. But where else are you going to learn to trust in God fully in a moment of despair other than the valley? You must go through the valleys. And God is sovereign over those times in your life. And God goes with you. God goes with you. Even when it doesn't feel like it. Even when it feels like what David is feeling here. Even when it feels like you have just been left to your own. God is with you. Even when it doesn't feel like it. Even when you can't see any hint of his presence with you. And in those moments, friends, it is okay to cry out to him. It's okay to tell him how greatly, how deeply afflicted you are, but above all, don't despise the Lord's discipline. Don't loathe his reproof. Rather, if God will not remove your affliction, and sometimes he won't, and if he won't, pray that he would sweeten us, sweeten it with an unshakable awareness and assurance that he is with you and that he is for you and that you remain steadfastly in his arms, in the grasp of his covenant love, his never-relenting covenant love toward his own. And remember that he disciplines those whom he delights in. And that you'll learn to love him and you will learn to trust him and you will learn to cling to him more closely in the valleys than you will on the mountaintops. You'll learn to walk more closely with him in the darkness than you will in the light. So David continues crying out to God as we continue. Verses four to seven. David continues saying, Return, O Lord, Rescue my soul. Save me because of your loving kindness. For there is no mention of you in death. In Sheol, who will give you thanks? I am weary with my sighing. Every night I make my bed swim. I dissolve my couch with my tears. My eye has wasted away with grief. It has become old because of all my adversaries. You get the sense as you read this that David has reached the end of his proverbial rope. He has nothing left. And while this is the most difficult place in the world to be, as anyone who has reached the end of their rope knows, it's also a blessed place to be. But it's a terrifying place to be. Because our feelings, our feelings are so 
deceptive. And they can be so strong. They can be like somebody just yelling in both your ears. And you're trying to listen for something else. But your feelings are like just shouting in your ears. And it's all you can hear. It's all you can think. It's all you can feel. But do you see what David is feeling here? He's feeling like he's been abandoned by God. He's feeling like God has walked away from him. He's feeling like he can't take one more second of this discipline. He's feeling, he's feeling, he's feeling. And so what he prays here is that God would return. That God would would turn back to him. And haven't we all felt like that? Haven't we all had times when we... Maybe you started to doubt that God was even hearing your prayers because there's just no relief to speak of that you were feeling, none on the horizon that you could see coming. Haven't we all felt like that? And again, maybe it's because of a sin in David's life, or maybe not. Maybe it's simply the loving discipline of God. But David is feeling depressed, and he's feeling at the point of despair. Now, there are some in Christian circles who would say that anxiety and depression are always the result of sin. That is not true. That is not true. You can despair and not be in sin. You can feel depressed and not be in sin. You can have anxiety and not be in sin. It is not true that sin is always necessarily linked to those things. Sin certainly can be linked to anxiety and and depression and so on. But if you want to make the argument that anxiety and depression and distress are always related to sin, you're going to have to make the argument that Jesus sinned in the anxiety and the distress that he felt on the night of his betrayal in the Garden of Gethsemane right before he got arrested. Because he was feeling distress. He was feeling anxiety. He was feeling sort of panicked in the moment. No, anxiety and spiritual depression can very much be linked simply to a sense of God's discipline where you start to feel like you've been abandoned. His discipline can lead to a a sense of, of feeling like you've been abandoned, and that sense of abandonment can easily lead to a sense of anxiety or depression or or despair. And that's where David is as he writes this psalm. See, it's not inherently sinful for him to feel the way that he's feeling, but it is a very strong reminder for every single one of us that our feelings can be so deceptive. I mean, and that works two ways, really. There there can be something good that that you feel bad about, and, and so you're deceived. And there can be something bad that you feel good about, so once again, it can, it can be a deceiving thing, our feelings can. So David makes two requests here, if you look at verse 4. First, return, O Lord. And this word return gets translated uh, sometimes as, as repent by the Old Testament prophets when they would call for the people of Israel to repent. But obviously, David is not asking God to Repent, because God doesn't have anything to repent of, because God doesn't sin. Uh, What David is begging for instead, what he's pleading for, is a change of direction. He feels like God is walking that way, and he's saying, walk back this way. So it's a a radical change in, in direction for God to draw near to him in a moment when he feels like God is withdrawing from him. 
The second request he makes here in verse 4 is save me. But again, on, on what basis? Again, it's not on the basis of David's goodness or his accomplishments or his position, you know, as the king of Israel or his merit. It's entirely on the basis of what he says here, your loving kindness. Save me because of your loving kindness. And that is his chesed, if you remember that word from last month. That's his unshakable, unrelenting covenant love that God has toward his children. And this is David's hope. And it's ours as well. So here's what I would encourage you to do. Cling to that promise, friends. Cling to that promise. Take it to the bank. The funds are there. God has this hesed love toward his children. Your friends may abandon you. Your own family members may betray you or abandon you. But God, who has this steadfast loving kindness toward his children, this chesed, covenant love, he will always be faithful to you. Not because you deserve it. Not because you've been good. But because by his sovereign covenant grace, he is relentlessly faithful to his people. So, the basis of David's plea is first, God's covenant love. The second basis is God's own glory. Look what he says here in verse 5. He says, For there is no mention of you in death. In Sheol, who will give you thanks? So David is basically saying here, God, please spare me so that I can keep praising you, so that I can keep worshiping you. Spare me in order that you will be glorified in my life. That's a powerful plea, by the way. It's the same plea that Moses used with God when God was ready to unleash his holy wrath on the Israelites, and Moses was the mediator. He he interceded as a foreshadowing of of Christ. Moses begged God to relent because, you know, if if God were to destroy them as they deserved, as, as they rightfully deserved, then the people, the nations, would then mock God for delivering the Egypt or the, the Israelites from the Egyptians, but not being able to deliver them from death in the wilderness. Friends, one of the great things that God can do for us, one of the greatest gifts he can give you is a hunger, is a passion for his own glory. Think of it this way. If we are consumed, if we are overwhelmed with a passion for God's glory, then what will we not be willing to endure if we know that God is going to be glorified in it? If that is what you want, the most of all, Do you see how that helps David hang on a little bit longer? How it could help you hang on another day, another week. See, if we know that God will be glorified in our suffering, and God's glory is our greatest passion, our greatest desire, our suffering actually becomes a little bit more bearable. And that's what we're called to do. We are called to suffer. We're called to deny ourselves, take up our cross, and follow Jesus. You think you can do that without suffering? 
think you can take up a cross without suffering. I mean, the, the idea of the cross is there will be suffering. But what makes suffering more bearable is the desire to see God glorified in the accomplishment of his purposes. As Protestants, one of the great things that was recovered in the, in the Protestant Reformation was the cry of soli deo gloria, which means all to the glory of God, everything for the glory of God. This is one of, the, one of what you would call the, the five solas of the Reformation. And that is a means of finding strength and comfort in the midst of suffering. David gives us a very poetic description of his suffering, especially in verses 6 and 7, doesn't he? I mean, he, he's utterly exhausted. He can't sleep. He, he spent the nights crying so much his tears could dissolve his couch, which strikes me as a lot of tears. I'm not sure exactly how many that would take, but it's a lot. That's the point. He's just crying and crying and crying to the point where his eye has wasted away with grief. A lot of tears. And, and all of this might seem melodramatic or kind of over the top, but if you've ever had a night like this or nights like this where you go to bed knowing you're not going to be sleeping, you want to sleep, you're exhausted, and, and your, your hope is that you'll, you'll somehow be able to find sleep, but as you lay there and the clock is ticking slower and slower, it feels like, that is horrible. It feels like torture. It is exhausting. It is draining both physically and spiritually. But remember that this is David that we're talking about. This is not some um, you know, hyper-feminized man. These are the words of a guy who was a fierce, fierce warrior. If anybody was strong, it was David. If anybody was courageous, it was David. If anybody would be successful in battle because of just their toughness, it was David. And yet, here he is confessing that he's so smitten with grief, he's just broken down crying from the deepest darkness of the valley. I mean, Paul would also have great moments of despair. In 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 8, he writes this. He says, For we do not want you to be unaware, brethren, of our affliction which came to us in Asia, that we were burdened excessively beyond our strength, so that we despaired even of life. I mean, even, even Paul, who was willing to get in Peter's face, to, to correct him. And this is a brave guy. This is a guy who, who was courageous. But even Paul sometimes suffered from this spiritual depression. And throughout history, you see the same thing over and over again. You see that men who were strong, men who were courageous, men who were brave, masculine, they were sometimes prone to these immense, immense times of depression and despair. Martin Luther is one, uh, another example. He's, he's said to have been strongly inclined to times of depression and despair. Same for, for Charles Spurgeon. I mean, these are not anything less, these are not cowardly men. These are brave men that we're talking about. But all of these men, they're, they're known for being courageous, and yet they were all inclined to times of incredibly deep depression 
going through very dark valleys. And it's natural when you're there, when you're in the valley, it's natural to want the torment, the discipline, the depression, to to just stop, to cease, of course. But here's my question for you. Can you cling to the promise that God will never leave you or forsake you? It's easy to say yes to that question, by the way, when things are going great. It is difficult to honestly say yes to that question when you are in the deepest, darkest depths of the valley. Can you cling to the promise that God is with you? Can you cling to the promise that God is using every single circumstance in your life to refine you and to grow you in Christ's likeness? Can you cling to the promise that God will be glorified in your weakness and in your suffering? Remember what Paul said that I just read about reaching you know, the end of his rope, reaching the point of despair? Listen to what he said next. 2 Corinthians 1.9. He says, Indeed, we had the sentence of death within ourselves so that, this is the key, we had the sentence of death within ourselves so that we would not trust in ourselves, but in God who raises the dead. Do you see that? What a glorious thing it is to reach the end of our rope. Because that's when we stop trusting in number one. That's when we stop trusting in ourselves and we realize, what am I doing being number one? I should be number two or number three. We reach the end of our ropes and we realize that God is our greatest hope. We realize that we haven't even come anywhere near to the end of God's faithfulness unto his own because he's with us no matter how dark the valley gets, no matter how deep the valley goes. See, God's people are not immune from going through these valleys, but what we must see is that we are still never without hope. And that's the realization that David suddenly comes to. He's reached the end of himself, and the only option he has left is to trust in the Lord with all of his heart and to not lean on his own understanding. And that is a wonderful and blessed place to be. So he's remembered God's grace. He's pled God's grace. He's remembered God's steadfast love to his own. And having thus realized these things, remember these things, he remembers, he realizes that God hasn't abandoned him, no matter what his feelings are shouting in his ears, so to speak. And so he concludes the psalm with a perspective, the perspective that we need, that we want, that we thirst for, especially when you're in the depths of the valley. He concludes the psalm with a perspective that lifts his soul out of the darkness of the valley into victory. Let's look at verses 8 to 10 together. David says, Depart from me, all you who do iniquity. For the Lord has heard the voice of my weeping. The Lord has heard my supplication. The Lord receives my prayer. All my enemies will be ashamed and greatly dismayed. They shall turn back. They will suddenly be ashamed. I mean, it's impossible to miss the change here, isn't it? I mean, there's a a drastic change in David's heart, in his spirit, in his, in his attitude here. Suddenly, it's like he's alive again. 
Suddenly, he's filled with this confident assurance. He's remembered God's covenant love. He's remembered that God himself chose David as his man, as king over Israel. And he knows that whatever he faces, whatever circumstance that brought him to the depths of despair in the valley, God was with him, God was for him, and God heard his pleas for help. And above and beyond that, he's reminded himself of the fact that God was sovereign over whatever affliction he faced. God was disciplining him. But he was disciplining him out of love, not out of wrath. And that makes a huge difference for him. Seeing that this is all God's love unto him. He's disciplining him as a loving father disciplines a son in whom he greatly delights. So David's mind is no longer being led by his feelings. See, that's what, that's what happens so easily, is our mind starts tuning out everything else and only listening to our feelings, but David has, has turned away from that. He's, he, his mind is no longer being led by his feelings. No, now his feelings are being led by his mind. In other words, his feelings are being muted by what he knows, by what he knows specifically about God, about God's nature, about God's character, about God's faithfulness, about God's covenant love for his children. All of a sudden, the the voices of his feelings go silent because he's focused on what he knows about God. If you remember back in verse 4, David begged God to turn back to him. Now David uses the same Hebrew word, but toward his enemies. Turn back. By the way, you'll note that the first line from uh, verse 8 there, depart from me all you who do inequity. Does that sound familiar? We see Jesus say that in Matthew chapter 7 at the end of the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus was quoting from David there. On the day when many will say to him, Lord, Lord, did we not... And that's what Jesus will say to those people. Let me ask you this. Don't want to get too far ahead of ourselves here. What has changed about David's circumstances, like physically, outwardly? What has changed? Nothing. As far as we can tell, nothing, not that we're told of anyway, nothing has changed about his circumstances. But he knows that he's been heard. He knows that he is loved by God. The Lord has heard my supplication. The Lord receives my prayer. See, that realization is part of the key to finding relief, part of the key to finding victory in the valleys. Now, I alluded to Jesus. Like David, Jesus experienced anxiety to the point of literally sweating drops of blood. He he was not terrified about the fact that he was about to be crucified. No, he was terrified at the agony that he would face, knowing that while he himself had never, ever sinned, the sins of all of God's people from throughout all time would be laid on him, and the Father's hand would crush him. And if there's anybody who knew how awful that is, how rightly terrified somebody should be, at facing God's wrath, it was Jesus. And so he was in agony. He was was terrified. 
He knew that the Father's hand was going to crush him. He knew what that involved as Jesus gave himself as a substitute, standing in the place and bearing God's wrath in the place of his people. And in his fear of being crushed by the Father, he, similar to David, cried out, My Father, if it's possible, let this cup pass from me. Yet, not as I will, but as you will. Nevertheless, he was heard. Nevertheless, Isaiah chapter 53.10 says, But the Lord was pleased to crush him, putting him to grief. On the cross, Jesus cried out to the Father, Why have you forsaken me? Well, he was forsaken so that everyone who would repent and place saving faith in Christ would not be forsaken would not be abandoned. Jesus bore our sin and shame so that we wouldn't have to. He endured the wrath of God on our behalf so that we would be clothed in robes of his own righteousness. Like David, though, Jesus' agony was not the end of the story. He rose again on the third day for our justification and he ascended into heaven where he lives forever and reigns at the right hand of the Father even today, even when it doesn't look like it. But he is coming again. And when he does, he will judge the living and the dead. If you want to be counted among the living on that day, you must place saving faith in Jesus You must be found in Christ on that day. Because on that day it will be too late. And know this, friends. The darkest and deepest valley that you will travel in this life is absolutely nothing in comparison to the darkness that those who are not in Christ on that day will face. David says, All my enemies will be ashamed and greatly dismayed. If that's true of David's enemies, how much more true is it of those who remain steadfastly set against God as enemies? Refusing to love, refusing to serve, refusing to bow before, refusing to obey the Lord Jesus Christ. See, David's victory foreshadows the victory that Christ gained over death and David's casting away of and his just judgment of his enemies foreshadows the day in which the Lord will judge and cast out his enemies in justice and righteousness. Is God testing you? Is God stretching you? Is he disciplining you? If he's not now and you're in Christ, be sure that he will be because, as his word says, those whom the Lord loves, he disciplines, and he scourges every son whom he receives. Therefore, friends, as we're instructed in Proverbs, do not reject the discipline of the Lord or loathe his reproof. Draw near to God in the trials that you face, and you will face trials. Be quick to forsake Every confidence you may have in yourself in those times. Remember who God is. Remember his character. Remember his hesed, his covenant love toward his own. Remember his faithfulness. Remember that he hears you. Remember his sovereignty over every single circumstance you face in life. But may you learn to long, to crave, 
to have a passion for God being glorified in your life more than you even want your own comfort. Because that is where you'll find comfort in your trials. That's where we find victory in the valleys. One of the things I do is I, I, I read this. It's called The Valley of Vision. It's a Puritan uh, book. It's written by Puritans. Uh, it's prayers. Um, but I, I, it, uh, it has one of the best prayers I've, I've ever heard. And a couple years ago, when I was just torn apart, when Christina was in the hospital, that's when I discovered this book. Uh, so let me read um, this, this prayer to you. And I would encourage you to... Uh, to, to Learn from what the Puritans prayed. And if you want one of these books, see me after service. I've got several. I can give you one. But this is what the prayer says. It says, Lord, high and holy, meek and lowly, thou hast brought me to the valley of vision. For I live in the depths, but see thee in the heights. Hemmed in by the mountains of sin, I behold thy glory. Let me learn by paradox that the way down is the way up, that to be low is to be high, that the broken heart is the healed heart, that the contrite spirit is the rejoicing spirit, that the repenting soul is the victorious soul, that I have nothing is to possess all, that to bear the cross is to wear the crown, that to give is to receive, that the valley is the place of vision. Lord, in the daytime, stars can be seen from deepest wells, And the deeper the wells, the brighter thy stars shine. Let me find thy light in my darkness, thy life in my death, thy joy in my sorrow, thy grace in my sin, thy riches in my poverty, thy glory in my valley. While God's discipline can be absolutely terrifying and agonizing when we're in the midst of it, Friends, his discipline is always for our good. Always for our good. In that it refines us and it teaches us to trust in God above everything else. Above even trusting in ourselves. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Our most gracious Father, what a blessed thing it is to gain this perspective of life that you are sovereign over all things. That there's nothing that we face that surprises you. There's nothing that we face that you did not ordain from eternity knowing that it was for our good. Father, we confess to you that we're so inclined to listen to our feelings We're so inclined to trust in ourselves, to follow our hearts. But your word, Father, corrects us. It tells us how desperately wicked the heart is. It tells us that we cannot trust our feelings, but we can trust in you. And we thank you that the sacrifice of Christ is what makes that possible. We thank you that Jesus paid it all. The sin that we are guilty of. Thank you that he bore it for us. That he bore the wrath that we deserved. So that you won't ever abandon us. 
So in times, Lord, when we feel like you have, fill us with assurance that we may find victory in the valley and know that you are with us and for us and causing all things to work for our good and for your glory and make your glory our greatest, greatest desire. In Jesus' name, amen. This message has been brought to you by BibleStudyPodcast.org. We are a listener-supported ministry. If this is your first time listening to us, we thank you so much for joining us, and we ask nothing further from you. But if this is a ministry that you rely on for regular spiritual teaching, we do depend on your financial support to keep us going and growing. If you'd like to make a donation to BibleStudyPodcast.org to keep us going and reaching thousands of people around the world, you can go to our website, BibleStudyPodcasts.org, and you can make a donation on the right-hand side by clicking on the support box. Again, we do rely on your support, and we thank you so much for your financial participation in this ministry, which enables us to continue in our mission of teaching timeless truths in these truthless times. God bless you. Thank you so much for listening today and keep growing closer to Jesus. Take me deeper.